Let me invite you to open your copy of the Bible to Mark chapter 14, uh, verses 43 through 52 is where we'll be this morning. Mark 14, 43 through 52, Lord willing, as we continue to press forward through the book of Mark. I want to do things a little differently this morning. I'm not going to read my text up front. I'm going to read it as we go through. Um, I'm doing this intentionally because I want you to see we're, we're really into the, the passion work of the Christ. We're, we're seeing him as he's laboring, going to the cross, not laboring, resisting, but laboring really against so many forces around him to keep him from the cross. And he's steadfastly going anyway. Uh, and so I want you to see this in a narrative fashion because God here is telling us the story of how Christ died for us. As we were singing that song, uh, Ethan's exactly right. That is the, the heart cry of all of us who have been changed by the grace of God. But I couldn't help but to think how easily we are distracted. And um, for about a month now, I've been on this thing where I've cut out all sugar and cut out all yeast and all this kind of stuff. And in my mind, just to show you how, how um, I guess, sinful we, we are. Uh, in my mind, when I'm singing that, how sweet the sound of saving grace, just for an instant through my mind ran, how sweet the sound of chocolate cake, you know? Um, so we want you to know that we're all in the process of being conformed to the image of God. And uh, we were created that way. But we, through our rebellion, uh, have rejected God's authority over our lives. We've gone our way and we've been plummeted into death, physical and spiritual we have the wrath of God coming to us, but Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. And he went to the cross and he took that wrath of God. And there's a line there uh, in one of the songs, and I can't remember it, but will he hold this against me? Will he hold this sin against me if Christ truly went to the cross? And the answer is no. If he is your hope, if he is your Savior, there is therefore now no condemnation against those who are His. That's good news, isn't it? And that's why we gather here this morning. Well, this message this morning is entitled Improper Force. Improper Force. Um, let me read you my illustration or share my illustration and you'll see where we go. Improper Force. From uh, a website, cops.usdoj.gov, here's an article that is written there. Every day, law enforcement officers face danger while carrying out their responsibilities. When dealing with a dangerous or unpredictable situation, police officers usually have very little time to assess it and determine the proper response. Here, good training can enable the officer to react properly to the threat or possible threat and respond with the appropriate tactics to address the situation, possibly including some level of force if necessary. The U.S. Commission on Civil Rights has stated that in diffusing situations, apprehending alleged criminals and protecting themselves and others, officers are legally entitled to use appropriate means, including force. The International Association of Chiefs of Police, the IACP, uh, in its study, defined the use of force as the amount of effort required by police to compel compliance by an unwilling subject. I started to come in here and show you a video, but all I'd have to do is pull up YouTube and pull up cops, you know, and, and you've all seen it. Um, the amount of force it takes to um, compel compliance. The IACP also identified five components of force, physical, 
chemical, electronic, impact, and firearm. To some people, though, the mere presence of a police officer can be intimidating and seen as use of force. The Bureau of Justice Statistics, in their data collection on police use of force, states that the legal test of excessive force is whether the police officer reasonably believed that such force was necessary to accomplish a legitimate police purpose. However, there are no universally accepted definitions of reasonable and necessary because the terms are subjective. A court in one jurisdiction may define reasonable or necessary differently than a court in a second jurisdiction. More to the point is an understanding of the improper use of force, which can be divided into two categories, unnecessary and excessive. The unnecessary use of force would be the application of force where there is no justification for its use, while an excessive use of force would be the application of more force than required where use of force is necessary. Say, so why in the world did you come in here and give us all those articles? Because in our text this morning, we're going to see an improper use of force. Um, not in the way that you might think of it. We have seen, and, and I, I think we should pray for those uniformed police officers and our military personnel around the world who are, who are helping to help us to live in a free society where we, we can feel safe. But we've all seen videos where maybe they take it a little too far. And the person is unnecessarily beaten or unnecessarily sprayed with pepper spray or unnecessarily used with a taser on them. Um, we're going to see Jesus here, though, in a totally different way, being the victim of improper force. And I think you'll see it as we go through. What I want you to see is that no one is having to compel him to go to the cross. He is headed there despite all those who are trying to stop him. He is resolute. He has set his face like flint to go to the cross. And what we're going to see by the the guards and the police officers and those of the temple is an improper use of force today. Let me give you three things today as we walk through this text. Number one, satanic betrayal only served his plan. Satanic betrayal only served his plan. Look with me at verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. It's as if when, when Mark here is writing this, and he's learned after the fact. He's writing this after this has taken place. He's, he looks back and he says, this was Judas. What Judas is about to do is unbelievable because he's one of the twelve. He repeats it there. In fact, all the gospel writers do. It's as if they can't believe it. How could one of the twelve betray Jesus? And with him, a crowd. This crowd, some believe, is probably upwards of a thousand people. Up until this point, the crowd has been for Jesus. They've been on his side. They've rallied around Jesus. They have pushed in on him, wanting to hear what he has to say, wanting to be the beneficiaries of his godship, his feeding, his healing, his casting out of demons. They've been very much in his corner. But now in the middle of the night comes a crowd of possibly a thousand people and they are not in his corner any longer. The Bible says here that this crowd comes with swords and clubs. This gives us a clue that there are two different groups here of enforcers. Those that were carrying swords were Roman guards. 
They were, it was during the Passover, and during the Passover, Rome would issue extra soldiers, particularly to this region, in case something were to begin to break out. They would be able to quickly put down an insurrection. And so they issued these extra soldiers. And here in the middle of the night, in the garden, here come these carrying swords. And it was a short sword, more like a dagger, that was used for the quick killing. So we see Roman soldiers here. And then we see that there are also those who come with clubs. The clubs would be the equivalent of uh, what, what a policeman sometimes carries in his, his the, the stick or the, uh, the, the, the billy stick or whatever it is that they, that they carry sometimes. And they're carrying these clubs, and these are the temple police. So you have Roman guards and you have temple police. And they have all gathered with the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, and they are coming now into the garden to arrest him. Why are they coming with swords and clubs and with a thousand people? Well, you think about it. Obviously, they're expecting that when they come, that he will try to escape. That his, his disciples will try to fight. And they, know, they want to be ready. So they come with a thousand, with swords and with clubs, ready to fight to take Jesus in. What they're not prepared for is the fact that Jesus will not fight. They just will not, because this is where he is to go. Keep, keep reading with me. From the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer, the betrayer had given them a sign. The betrayer. It's here Mark doesn't even say him by name anymore. He doesn't say Judas. He doesn't say one of the twelve. He simply says the betrayer. He does that because he can't even bear to say his name anymore. He's disgusted with him. How could this one of us, this one of the twelve, do this to our Lord? This betrayer. And he had given them a sign. He had given them this sign. The one I will kiss is the man. Now, it was common in that day. We, we think it's a little weird, you know. We would not come into a room full of men and walk up to one another and kiss one another. Uh, if, if, if that happens here, I'll just be a, you know, church discipline right there, okay? That's the case right there for church discipline. But in that day, it was normal. It was a greeting. It was like a handshake. It was, it was one of affection and respect. And particularly, the kiss on the cheek was a kiss among equals. And I used to read this, and I used to think, why? I mean, Jesus publicly taught. He was... He was, in some ways, well-known. I mean, they knew who he was. They'd been following him all these three years, dogging every step of the way. Why do they need Judas? Why do they need him here to give them a sign and to go and kiss him as to show which one he is? Well, the answer is, don't forget, that it's dark. It's dark. It's in the middle of the night. It's in a garden. And there's multiple disciples around. And there's a thousand people and he could very easily, they could very easily take the wrong man. Jesus could very easily, what they're expecting is for him to run, he could very easily slip away. And so they want to make sure that they get Jesus. So Judas here gives them this sign and says, the one whom I kiss is the man. Um, I read this and I started out by saying satanic betrayal only serves the plan of God. And the reason I say satanic is because this can't be explained any other way, can it? How else can you explain one of the twelve, one of the disciples, one who Jesus chose, the one who was entrusted with the money bag, how can you explain him betraying Jesus in this manner? 
There's no other way to explain it other than satanic. Um, Judas had been so close. I mean, he had seen and heard more than enough to know who Jesus really was. As I studied, I walked back through Mark as we're coming down to the close of Mark after two years being here. I walked back through from chapter one all the way through. And from the moment that Jesus calls his disciples, I just listed out some of the things that Judas was privy to. Not just privy, but was there, present, close, witnessed firsthand. He was there when Jesus taught the parable of the soils. He heard Jesus say, some of the seed falls here, falls on rocky ground. But the birds come and they steal it away. He heard that. He didn't realize that he was that rocky ground. That Satan had snatched the gospel right away from him, even though he was closer than you and I will ever be to walking with Jesus. He was there when Jesus fell asleep in the boat, in the stern of the boat, and the storm arose, and they all thought they were going to die. And they said, Jesus, don't you care? Jesus woke up from his rest and stood up and spoke to the sea and said, be still. Can you imagine? We, we read about that. Judas saw it, heard the intonation, the inflection of Jesus, and saw the sea respond to his voice. Judas was there when they encountered the demon-possessed man in the cemetery. The man who no one else could handle, so they chained him and put him out in the cemetery. And he lived there among the, the graves. And he comes out to Jesus. And Jesus cast the demons out of him. Cast them into the, the pigs, the herd of pigs that were there. And they all ran over the cliff and into the ocean. He was there. He saw the transformation in this man. First hand, Judas was there when the woman reached out through the crowd and touched the hem of his garment. And Jesus, without even having anyone tell him someone had touched him, she didn't come to him and say, would you heal me? She just touched his garment and he said, who touched me? And no power went out from me. Judas saw this, saw her healed. He was there. He was among those who were sent out two by two. He, Judas was sent out to heal. He was sent out to cast out demons. He did it. And he was among those who came back and said, we, we've, we've had incredible power. Judas is there and he's going through all of it. He was there when Jesus fed 5,000 people with just a little boy's lunch. He was there later on when he fed 4,000 people. He was there when Jesus came walking to them on the sea. Judas was there when Jesus time and time again confounded the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders and made them look foolish. Judas was there when he healed the deaf man, when he healed the blind man. Judas heard Peter confess him to be the Christ of God. Judas was there and he heard Jesus predict his own crucifixion and his own resurrection before it would happen. Judas was there and he witnessed the triumphal entry. And he saw the people crying out, Hosanna. Judas was there when Jesus cleansed the temple and he saw this singular man just run all sorts of people out of the temple. Judas was there when Mary anointed his feet. 
anointed his head with expensive perfume. You, you think about all that Judas encountered firsthand. Wouldn't you like to have been at just one of those? If you could pick one, what would it be? Judas was there for all of it. And that's just in Mark. And I left some out. And that's not to include all that was included in the rest of the Gospels. And then you get to the end of John. And John says, if all that Jesus had done and said were written down in books, the world couldn't hold all the books. Judas was there for all of that. So how in the world could he do what he's doing? How could he betray Jesus? There's no other explanation other than there was an external force that was acting on him. Satan himself, and this is what we learn in Luke chapter 22, verse 3. After Mary anoints Jesus, the Bible says, then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. Judas was, while he was responsible for his actions, he was a man possessed. There's no other explanation for this. And this begs the question, as I was studying and writing this out, it begs the question, how in the world could Satan possess one of Christ's followers? And this is kind of scary stuff. If Satan can possess one of Christ's followers, then we're in trouble. The answer to that is, Satan didn't possess one of Christ's followers. Judas was never one of Christ's followers. He walked with him. He listened to him. He carried the money for him. He witnessed what he did. He was there. But he never trusted Christ. He never believed that he was the Messiah. He's the only one of all the apostles, all those disciples, that never called him Lord. He always called him teacher or rabbi. He never saw him as anything else. So the answer is, you and I, in some way, well, very confidently, if we are children of God, if we are truly Christians today, we don't have to worry. Satan cannot possess a true follower of God. But he can convince a whole lot of people that they are followers of God. And he'll use things like church attendance and Bible study attendance and giving of offering and Serving in this ministry or being a deacon or, or, or even serving in, in the ministry vocationally or whatever the case may be. He will use even all of that to convince you that you are okay with God. And you and I know today that there is only one way to be right with God. And that is through the finished work of Christ at Calvary. Judas was the exact picture of Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3. And you were dead. Judas, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You never stopped walking in them. You were stealing from the treasury. You were following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Judas was us, maybe still you, if you have not received Christ. Look at how this played out. Look at verses 45 and 46. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. 
This is exactly according to plans. He comes up to Jesus in the middle of the night and he, he just goes overboard. The word kiss there is a word, it's not the, the first word that was used for kiss. It's a word that means exuberant, over the top. He comes to Jesus and he, Rabbi, and he pulls him in and he embraces him very heartily. And he kisses him on the cheek and he kisses him on the other cheek and he kisses him repeatedly. As if to say, are y'all watching? This is him. This is him. And he goes overboard in his betrayal of Jesus. Isn't this really how betrayal works? Isn't this really how those who betray work? They will butter you up. They will say all sorts of nice things to you. They will flatter you up, up one side and down the other. They will kiss you over and over and over again just to distract you so that you will not see the knife coming. Proverbs chapter 27 verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Many are the kisses of an enemy. We must beware. There are wolves among the sheep. And they will do everything in the world to betray Jesus and to keep you from following him. If this is the work of Satan through Judas, then why? This is a question that we need to ask. Then why would Satan now want Judas to betray Jesus and take him to the cross? I mean, up until this point, hasn't, hasn't Satan tried to keep Jesus from the cross? If you think back to Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, Jesus in the wilderness and Satan comes to him and says, Jesus, after 40 days of fasting here in the wilderness, I know you've got to be hungry. Is your heavenly father not providing for you? Turn these stones into bread. Jump off this temple. Bow down and worship me. All of it was an attempt to stop Jesus from going where Jesus had intended to go. Later on, when, when Jesus says to the disciples, this is where I'm going. I will be arrested. I will be mocked and spit upon. I will be crucified. But after three days, I will be resurrected from the dead. And Peter sharply rebukes Jesus and says, may it never be. This can't happen to you. And Jesus' response to Peter was, get behind me, Satan. Up until this point, Satan has tried to keep Jesus from going to the cross. So now, why is he working in Judas to take Jesus to the cross faster? Well, here's my attempt at it. I don't think there's a real answer given in Scripture, but I think the answer is this. Satan understands, after all of this, that he cannot stop Jesus. Jesus is so committed and so submitted to the will of the Father, he's not going to stop him. So he says in his mind, I believe, I will make this as ugly and as bloody as I possibly can so that those who look upon him will say, there's no way this could be the Messiah. And he wants to stop those that would follow him in the future by what he can do there in the present. What Satan attempted to do, though, has backfired. Because here, 2,000 years later, we gather together on a Sunday morning and we sing songs about that bloody, cruel, ugly cross. And we celebrate that because it was at that point where God left heaven and came to us. And Satan tries to make it ugly and tries to reject Jesus through it. 
And all it does is to validate him. The resurrection validates that. It, re- it validates that he is the sinless son of God and that the father was well pleased in him. Satanic betrayal only serves God's plan. Satan thought that he would get the upper hand through this, but Jesus knew that it would only serve God's plan. Satanic betrayal would only serve his plan. That is true then and it is also true now. We've all experienced betrayal. We've all been betrayed by someone, stabbed in the back by someone. Let me tell you something. Sometimes there is a case for retaliation. There is a case for that. I'm not saying vengeance, but I'm saying that we are not simply to lay down and be doormats sometimes. But there are moments in time where in living the gospel life, in living through the power of the Holy Spirit toward a Christ-centered life, that we will be betrayed and persecuted. And when we do so, it is better that we would simply trust God and say, God, I don't know how this would ever serve your plan, but God, I'm willing to suffer for you if that's what your plan is. The second thing I want to show you in this passage this morning is that self-confident moxie, self-confident moxie did not serve his plan. Satanic betrayal served his plan, but self-confident moxie, it doesn't. It doesn't serve his plan. It didn't then, it won't now. Verse 47. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We know from other gospel writers that this was Peter. I mean, if, even if they didn't tell us, we would know that. You know, Peter's the most impulsive of the bunch. You know, Peter would be the one in the, in the bunch that was carrying a sword. You know, he, he'd be the one packing. He'd be the one that would pull it out and you know, swing at somebody, that'd be Peter. Matthew here gives us a more complete, more detailed account of this. Jesus said to, to, to Peter after he does this, after he strikes the servant of the high priest Malchus and cuts his ear off, put away your sword. Put away your sword, Matthew says. Jesus says there in Matthew, all who take the sword will perish by its sword. The kingdom of God was never meant to be advanced by violence, by aggression. That's what makes the the gospel beautiful. We don't advance by pressuring people. You don't advance the kingdom of God by having everyone in your army raise their hand and swear allegiance to your God. It cannot be the official religion. It moves by the Spirit. Jesus talked about this and said, by my spirit, says the Lord. The wind blows wherever it wants to go. You can't see it or know where it's going. And that's how it is with the Spirit of God. Christianity in history, there have been those that have tried to advance it by violence. And you look back at the Crusades. But it was never meant to be so. Now, let me just say this. I mean, Jesus here in Matthew, in his account, he says, Peter, put away your sword. No place for that here. Don't you know, Peter, that if I wanted to, I could call 12 legions of angels? Do you know how many, angel, how many angels would be in one legion? Well, let's say 12 legions, 72,000 angels. In an instant, if Jesus wants to call 72,000 angels. Say, well, you know, 72,000 against 1,000, you know, that's, that's an over, you know, they've got them. You know, they've overmatched them. No. You go back to Isaiah and you find there that one angel killed 185,000 men. 
you do the math. What Jesus is saying here to Peter is, Peter, if I wanted to stop this thing, I could stop it in an instant. Peter, put away your sword. Now, what in the world would cause Peter to all of a sudden do this other than his inherent impulsiveness? Well, you look at this, and right before this, when, when they come into the garden, they come to Jesus, and Jesus approaches them and says, Who do you seek? And they say, We're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And he says to them, I am he. And when he says, I am he, they all, thousand people, fall to the ground. The power of his voice. Well, Peter watches this. This is what I think. Peter watches this. And he becomes confident in this and says, if Jesus can knock them down with his voice, I'm at least going to get a swing in. I mean, they may come at me, but Jesus, hey, Jesus, to speak again, we're all good. Kind of like Barney Fife when Andy Griffith was there. You know, Barney, outside when Andy was not there, was timid and scared. Andy shows up. Barney's the tough guy. You know, he struts in. This is Peter here. And I think, that, I think the point for us here is that there is no place. Sometimes we will be betrayed and persecuted and maligned. We will live for the gospel and want to share the gospel and want to try to make disciples. And we will be resisted. And the answer is not for us to become self-confident. It's not for us to stick our chest out and say all the more, well, you know what? You're going to get it anyway. We've been around that kind of Christianity. We've been around that kind of church. And it really doesn't do a whole lot. We have to rely on the Spirit of God to work in and through His Word. And that's how the kingdom will be advanced. Sometimes it's better for us to quietly trust than to be filled with this self-confident moxie. won't go anywhere. Don't follow the example of Peter, nor Judas. Third is this, that self-preserving abandonment, self-preserving abandonment did not end his plan. Did not end his plan. This is a strange part of the story in verses 51 and 52. Look at it with me. The young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is only in Mark. Nowhere else. Just a strange little scene here. Um, He's there. He's in this linen cloth. And he's probably from some sort of a wealthy family. We don't know how he's there, why he's following Jesus. But the linen cloth says that he's probably fairly well off. and, And he's following Jesus. And they seize him. And he runs. And when he runs, they grab hold of the linen cloth. And he just runs right out of it. And he keeps going. And this is kind of strange. There's a whole lot of speculation as to who this is. Some say this was John. Others think that that this was probably James, the the brother of Jesus. Some say the traditional view is that this was Mark, the author of this gospel, writing what he's hearing from Peter. And I I tend to think we we don't know who it is. We, We have no way of saying who it is for sure because the Bible doesn't say. So we have to be careful here. But I tend to like the fact or like the thought that it is, in fact, Mark. Listen to what uh, James James Brooks writes about this. He says, perhaps Mark included the account as a way of confessing his own sin. The author's allusion to himself, his signature in the corner of his work, or something comparable to a medieval artist painting his own face into one one of the crowd. I think that could be what's going on here. We don't know for sure. Maybe Mark, in writing this, this is a way of him saying, I was, I was there. 
There are others that throughout church history have said Mark wasn't there. He was not an eyewitness of Jesus. We don't know. But here's what I want you to see. If this is true, if it is Mark, then 2,000 years later we're reading Mark's gospel. If this is Mark, he went on later in Acts and he served with Barnabas in missionary journeys. This self-preserving abandonment doesn't end the plan of God. Jesus was resolute. He was going to the cross. And even those who abandoned him in those moments, they were brought back into the plan through the grace and the mercy of God. Even Peter himself, what does the Bible say after he denies Jesus three times? The Bible says that three times after he is resurrected that Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, do you love me? And feed my sheep. When he appears to the women, after he's resurrected, he appears and they, they just find out that he's resurrected. He gives them instructions and says, go tell the brothers and Peter. He wants to be sure that we understand it. Peter, for him, the plan's not over. He may have failed. He may have fallen. He may have ran away in self-preserving abandonment, but it does not end my plan with him. I want to bring him along. And that's good news for you and I. Satanic betrayal serves God's plan. doesn't mean that we should seek to betray or seek to live how we want. This self-confident moxie doesn't serve God's plan. Self-preserving abandonment doesn't end God's plan. And that's good news for you and I. We don't have to worry that when we fall away and when we make mistakes and when we run to preserve ourselves because we are fearful that we will ever fall out of grace with Him. Because if we are truly His, we can be confident that we will always be truly His because He is the one who keeps us. Ethan made a statement in leading us to worship that we need God's providence to preserve us. And we need Christ. Because how many times do we fail and fall away. Why? Let me ask you this. Why would satanic betrayal, self-confident moxie, self-preserving abandonment not derail God's plan? Because faithful commitment and submission to the will of God was His plan. It had nothing to do with us. It had nothing to do with our betrayal or our abandonment. It had everything to do with Him going. He had not hidden anything. Verses 48 and 49. Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against me as a robber with swords, with clubs, to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the Scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and they fled. Jesus had never hidden anything. He had been upfront with them in everything. He had told them where he was going, that he would suffer. He knew this because he was in the mind of God and it went back and it was prophesied a thousand years before it ever happened. In Psalms, Psalms 41 verse 9, it says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who, I, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Jesus knows going in that his close friend will betray him. Psalm 55, 12-13 says, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from it, but it is you. A man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. 
Jesus knows he's going to be betrayed. And he goes anyway. And that's why I started with, with the illustration about improper use of force. Because they all come. They come seeking betrayal, thinking this is the way we will get him. Thinking that he's going to run from him, from them. But he doesn't. He's compliant in every way. Peter thinks, well, if it's going to happen, then I've got to fight for it. I've got to force my way in here. And Jesus says, Peter, put away your sword. They all abandon him. They all flee. And some would say, look, the mission failed. Jesus went to the cross and he died and they all left him. And it just came. It was this great three years, but it all came to nothing. And Jesus says, no, no, it wasn't for nothing because it's exactly according to plan. You cannot manipulate your way to God. You cannot force your way to God. You cannot even forfeit your way, of, your, your way from God, away from God, if you're truly His. Because God has done it all. God was not violently taken somewhere that He did not want to go. But as the Good Shepherd, Jesus Himself willingly laid down His life and took on all those forces that were trying to keep Him from the cross and He fought through all of them to get there for you and for me. And when we try to come in any other way, forcing our way, manipulating our way in, or rejecting ourselves because we are not good enough, then Jesus says, you cannot get there that way. I have gone so that you don't have to. I would encourage you today, if you're in this room, You're here today and and you realize that you have no part of God. You're lost in your sin. You've been trying to do it yourself. You've been trying to fool people. You've been trying to be good enough. You beat yourself down and say, I'll never be good enough. I would invite you today that in just a minute when I pray, I would invite you to come, come come to the cross. Come to Jesus. Because Jesus did not let any of that stop him. He went so that you wouldn't have to. Come today. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that it is powerful, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. God, I thank you for the example of Judas, the example that we are not to follow. God, I thank you for the example of Peter that we are not to follow. God, I thank you for the example of all the other disciples and this one who is unnamed that we are not to follow. But God, more than anything, I thank you for not just the example, but God, the finished work that you have accomplished. God, help us to rest in that. Lord, for those who are here, God, I pray that don't know you, that have never received your gift of mercy. God, I pray today that you would be merciful, that you would call them to yourself. God, that we would, tri- we would quit trying to use improper use of force in making ourselves right with you. But God, that today, that they would simply surrender and know that you have done it all. God, for those in the room today that are believers, they are Christians, they are children of God adopted into your family. God, I pray that today that we would rest, that we would not become lazy. God, that we would relinquish sin, that we would confess it and turn from it. 
that when we find ourselves tempted to or in guilty of betrayal, God, that we would confess that to you. Turn from it. When we find ourselves trusting too much in ourselves, God, that we would confess that and we would turn to you. God, when we find ourselves running away and embarrassed that we have so, God, I pray that we would confess that to you. And God, for the believers in this room today, God, that we would come to you trusting in you and you alone and we would rest there. God, help us to understand this more and more and more. In your mercy, I pray that you would speak, speak loudly, that you would move. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to give you an opportunity to reflect on what you've heard today. Um, Reflect on the passage that you've heard. Reflect on the lyrics that were in the songs earlier that we sang. And ask God, God, what, what is it that you would require of me? And we want you to spend just a few minutes looking internally, asking God to look internally at you. And then in just a a few seconds or so, Ethan will call us back up and I'll come to the front. And if you need today to come and have someone help you to trust Christ as Savior, I'll be here. If today you are here and you need someone to pray with, this altar is open and I would love to pray with you or you can pray by yourself. If this is the church where God is leading you to join, then I would encourage you to come join this church. Whatever the case may be, whatever God is calling you to do, I'm praying that you would be obedient today. Ethan, you lead us.